Welcome to Inspiration Rising. I'm your host, David Trotter, and we're here to inspire you to rise up in your life, love, and leadership. Before we jump into our conversation today, I want to give a special shout out to the Cultivating the Lovely podcast with Mackenzie Coppa. I had the privilege of being interviewed by Mackenzie on an episode called Getting Unstuck that just came out this past week. Go to her website, which is boldturquoise.com slash 123. I was episode 123. How convenient is that? boldturquoise.com slash 123. We talk all about my story and the ways that I have gotten unstuck and the ways that I help others get unstuck as well. I think you will love that conversation because Mackenzie Kappa is an absolute delight to speak with and a wonderful interviewer. Well, today, I am honored to share an important and inspiring conversation with you about resilience in the face of invasive breast cancer. Kate Snowwise is a life and executive coach, as well as the host of the Here to Thrive podcast. Now, she's originally from New Zealand, and she has extensive knowledge and practical experience in the areas of positive psychology, emotional intelligence, stress, and well-being in the workplace. Now, three days before Kate's 36th birthday last year, she was unexpectedly diagnosed with breast cancer. And in our conversation, she is so open to share about her personal journey of choosing to have a bilateral mastectomy, how she helped her children navigate the whole situation, and how she had to use her own resilience training strategies to navigate this unexpected turn in her life. I think you'll definitely want to share this episode with friends and family who are going through a similar experience. All right, let's jump into my conversation with Kate Snowwise. Well, Kate, thanks so much for taking time to hang with me today. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to talk about the subject of resilience. How would you describe it, how to define it, and how can we develop it in our lives? So for me, I think a lot of people think of resilience as that ability to sort of pick yourself back up after you've fallen down and how quickly you get back on the horse. But for me, it is really about the ability to withstand pressure and challenges while maintaining your psychological well-being. So for me, it's much broader than just being able to pick yourself back up. It's about withstanding the pressure while you're in the moment. The challenges we face in life aren't always bad. And I think that stress has got a bit of a bad reputation over the last few decades, but that there's this increasingly different way of looking at it and that we need a certain amount of pressure or challenge in our life to actually reach our potential. So I would say very true that stress or or the challenges we face in life do develop us or they can if we let them. Mm -hmm. So I know you do a lot of training in corporate environment and with coaching individuals. How do you help them deal with stressful situations before they even occur? I don't want to come in and do damage control in a group. I don't want to come in and be mopping up the pieces when everyone's feeling miserable and they've They've fallen off cliffs. You know, we can absolutely develop our resilience before we need to call on it. And so, in my training with corporate, my whole model is based on three separate parts of a stress process. So, I mentioned to you, I did my research into stress and well being in the workplace, and that was over a decade ago. And no one was talking about stress and well being in the workplace 10 years ago. Well, corporate 
companies certainly weren't paying for resilience training like they are now, which is like, yes, it's just a bit ahead of my game. But the, the model I use is very much based on what I did my research on. And there are three components to the stress process. And that is the demands we encounter. So the pressures we're facing, that's the first component. The mindset we have around the pressures we're encountering. So how we're looking at the the stuff that's stressing us out. How are we looking at that? What is our self-talk around that? And then finally, how we're nourishing or restoring ourselves. So a lot of people talk about that as self-care, but there's this three-part process that I train in the corporate market. So I encourage people to consider what are the demands, what are the things that are stressing you out, and as our language would say, what are the things you're encountering, then how can you deal with those? That's called problem-focused coping. So what is your problem? How can you deal with it? Start there. Start with addressing the problem. So if you have, uh, you know, if you came to me and said you were experiencing financial pressure, my very first thing would be, well, what can you do about it? You know, are you burying your head in the sand? Like, get a plan in place, deal with the pressure directly. That is problem-focused coping. And I always encourage everyone to start there. So if you're in the workplace and you're feeling a little bit stressed out, first of all, get a really clear idea of what are the things that are stressing me out? And then ask the question, what can I do about them? And then after you've addressed that, you can look at your mindset and your self-care or, or nourishing your spirit or re-energizing yourself. I think one of the questions that I saw you ask is, what can you control? So it seems like when we feel stressed, we feel out of control. But you're actually asking, no, no, no. The question is, what can you do about it? Is there is something you can control. There's something you can do. You can take action in some way. For sure. And that's exactly it. What can you control about this situation? There's going to be the odd scenario that there's not much you can control, but that's when you move into the two other elements of that stress equation. So as I say to my corporate clients and and the trainings that I do, you've got these three different places that you can impact the stress outcome, whether or not you feel stressed or not. There are three different ways you can impact it. Start with if you can directly control the problem or minimize the demand that is on you. If that isn't an option, then you've still got two other places that you can impact the stress process and and hopefully hope for a better outcome for yourself. So first step, what can you control? What can you do? How can you address it? Second one you said was mindset? Mindset. I so want to talk more about mindset. Um, So this is the interesting part about the stress sort of research and resilience is And a lot of people are familiar with the idea of we need to do more meditation, we need to uh, be more mindful. And yeah, I think that massively helps with your mindset and your ability to cope with pressure or to nourish and revive for sure. But I feel like the industry is kind of moving forward a little bit or developing its understanding of mindset when it comes to stress and well-being. And there really is been a big neglect in terms of understanding, as we touched on at the start, that stress isn't always bad for you. And I was laughing about this with someone the other day. Uh, There's actually a thing called eustress in the literature, which is good stress. Mm -hmm. We've been focusing on bad stress and being obsessed with it now for decades. And people now have just automatically assumed that stress is bad. And as we touched on in the start, 
you actually need a certain amount of stress, pressure or challenge in your life to reach your potential, to grow strong, to become all that you are capable of being. And really just understanding that, that simple that simple flick of a switch that maybe all stress isn't bad, maybe sometimes stress is enhancing. That simple flick of a switch and changing your mindset can make all the difference in whether or not you actually experience adverse outcomes. And that really is starting to be taught now, but it's still in its infancy. How do I know the difference between good stress and bad stress? What I would say is so much of it has to do with your mindset, David. (laughs) It's how you, it's called appraisal. It's how you decide to look at that stressor. Is it good stress or is it bad stress? Well, that's up to you. Do you think you have the capability to rise to the challenge? That's typically when people feel like it might be good stress, when they feel like they can do it, when they see it as what we call a challenge appraisal. But the, the, the opposite is a threat appraisal. If people feel like the challenge is beyond them or it's going to be too much, then that's often when it turns into bad stress. That's mm-hmm. sort of the way that the mindset can go in two ways. Okay. So, but we do have the power to choose to look at it as an enhancing opportunity, as something that may stretch us, but we ultimately have the capability to rise to the challenge and deal with. Mm-hmm. When I'm coaching individuals, it seems like, you know, obviously that stress component is the source of their dissatisfaction oftentimes. They're coming to the situation with the stress. And, you know, what's crazy is they could see the stress in a different way and rise to the occasion. But sometimes it, if someone has experienced that stress for so long, anymore. it's stuck. They're stuck in it. Yes. They've got to get yes. out of it, right? I, I 100% agree. So like coming back to this three-part model, like I said, there is always one part that you can influence. And I see the exact same thing with my coaching clients is when someone's truly burned out, they, they really struggle to impact their mindset. And so that's usually, if I'm dealing with someone who would be what I would call experiencing the symptoms of burnout, then I work on either directly dealing with the demands or the, or the pressures they're facing or on that last piece of the equation, which is restoration, self-care, reviving their energy to the point that mindset becomes easier to deal with. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I can figure out what I can do what I can control, then I can look at my mindset, how I'm seeing the stressful situation. Am I seeing it as bad stress and, or good stress, which is obviously a dichotomy. Like it just, it's never good or bad. You know what I mean? Like all others. Do I think I can rise to the challenge? Yeah. That's such a good question. What can I control? Do I think I can rise to the challenge? I'm all about questions. And then what's the third, the third question. It's around restoration. So like I talk about like, you'll see self-care has become super popular. It's like the catchphrase that everyone's throwing around. But I find that that's often not a very grounded concept for me. I'm quite practical. So I'm like, oh, you know, everyone's talking about bubble baths and uh, getting a massage. But what is the benefit of that? And I would say it's all about restoration or like I like to say, reviving your spirit. What are the unique things that will revive you? What are the the unique things that restore you? For some people, it might be a massage that kind of re-energizes them. But for other people, it might be a day on the mountain skiing. It might be, you know, going and spending some time down at the beach. 
surfing or it could be catching up with some friends for dinner. So for me, self-care is all sort of encompassing in terms of what restores you, what enlivens you, what brings you back to life. Mm-hmm. In terms of kind of like technical talk, this can also be thought of as emotion-focused coping. So you have problem-focused coping that deals with demands, and then you have emotion-focused coping that deals with kind of your your feelings and how energized and 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 resilient you feel. So I like to think of it as a well-being bucket, and then you become more tolerant when you're more filled up. So your resilience bucket's kind of bigger the more filled up you feel. Mm-hmm. So those self-care things are part of even developing that resilience before. It could be after or before. It could be at any time. You know, that's when you're, as I say, you're you're investing in your well-being account. And yeah, if you go through a period of high stress, high pressure, you might drain that down a little bit. But uh, if you've pre-invested, if you're feeling really good, if you're feeling energized and on the front foot, we know this about ourselves. We deal with pressure a lot better when we're in that kind of state than when we're already feeling like we're functioning at the bottom of our bucket. It's like one more tiny pressure when you feel like you're you're already empty is enough to kind of, it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. So it's about maintaining that well-being tank, making sure that we are always investing in our well-being. Mm -hmm. I know last year you experienced a personal challenge that you've spoken about, but I wanted to just chat with you about a a few minutes if we could. Can you tell us a bit more about what happened last year and how that required you to become resilient? Oh, I was, yeah. I say the irony was not lost on me. So um, I was in the middle of delivering corporate resilience training on exactly this model that I've just talked you through now, obviously in a lot more depth. I usually do half day or full day workshops on it. And uh, they have an office in San Francisco and an office in New York City. And so I was flying out one week to deliver the training uh, for a full day in San Francisco and then the following week to deliver the training in New York City. And and I live in Minneapolis and and the time I was home, I was unexpectedly diagnosed with breast cancer. So completely, and I say unexpected, I had no family history. I had this mammogram, just, I think the doctor just wanted to get me out of the office, to be honest. So I was expecting nothing of it. And I- Did you have a mammogram scheduled in between the two trips? So I did, but I, I wasn't the least bit concerned about it. Uh, I thought it was just a bit of a, you know, I really routine. had no concerns. It was kind of a routine, like tick that box. You hadn't felt anything? or I had not felt yeah. anything. I had no lumps. I, I was, I did have some discomfort uh, that, that had taken me, which got me the mammogram because people mm-hmm. don't typically have mammograms before they're 40. And I was 35 at the time. But that was completely unrelated to what they found. I um, had breast cancer in the other breast that had no complaints. Mm. So complete stroke of luck. But uh, yeah, I really had no concerns. And And I've spoken to so many other women who've been diagnosed with breast cancer. And that's often the most anxious time for them is when they're then scheduled for a mammogram and then they have to wait on the results. And I didn't have any of that because I had no anxiety about having my mammogram. And then when they did find that something wasn't quite right, they moved incredibly quickly with me and I was diagnosed within, um, I had my mammogram on a Wednesday and I had my biopsy on a Thursday and I knew by Friday that I had breast cancer. So yeah. I, I didn't have this weight, which is, is anxiety inducing. And uh, coming back to resilience, 
that weight is anxiety inducing because as we've just spoken about, there's not a lot you can control there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I never had to deal with that weight, which was nice. For two or three days you did though. Oh, and I wasn't even concerned when they called me back the next day for a biopsy because they then told me that only um, 20% of people that were biopsied actually had breast cancer. So I just assumed I was one of the 80%, ever the optimist, but I Good. wasn't. Oh, I wasn't. Okay. All right. <laughs> and did you go ahead and go do the second training? I did go and do the second training. I did, I did, I did. Uh, so then I was in a holding period, which was a which was pretty uh, awful because I knew I had breast cancer. Uh, with breast cancer, I had what is called invasive breast cancer, which means it's already spread into your breast. Uh, there's actually a stage zero in breast cancer and mine ended up at a stage one, but I did know it was invasive. So I knew it had spread into my breast tissue, uh, but I didn't know how bad it was. So that was an intense week for me where I had to literally apply my own model to resilience to my own life. How do I deal with my current predicament? And I came back to these three grounding principles of look at what I can control. Where is the pressure coming from? What can I control about this? How can I influence my mindset? And how can I take care of me? Mm. And when I literally, I literally made lists around those three things. And I wrote all the things I could control. And, you know, it's a situation where you would say I was very out of control but I could control learning about breast cancer. I didn't know anything about breast cancer. I could control connecting with people to try and find the best doctors. Those were the things that were on my list of things I could control and actions I could immediately take. Uh, And then obviously there was mindset and taking care of myself. But as I said in my second training, um, you know, I'm applying this stuff in my own life right now and and I'm seeing it really does work. (laughs) So the model worked kindly. Did you tell that second training? I, hey, by the way, I'm a little scattered. I have breast cancer. Uh, you know, like that could be your excuse all week. I know, right? Okay, totally. Um, I worked with this company very closely and I had a lot of coaching clients that, because uh, I do one-to-one coaching and I also do corporate workshops, resilience and self-leadership. So it was a company that I have a very close relationship with. And so I had to put all my coaching clients on hold. And uh, not knowing how my treatment was going to pan out, I had sent sort of a a, 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 a blast out email to all of my coaching clients and um, had announced it that way to a lot of people within this company. So yeah, I did mention it when I was there and said this was the last thing I was doing before I took a personal break. Mm. Um, Yeah, I I didn't pretend it wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it was certainly not about me. But yeah, right, right. I hope I didn't make anyone feel uncomfortable at the time. <laughs> yeah. I I have a friend who has brain cancer, and he's had three brain surgeries. And so you know, he's a kidder. And so anytime anything goes wrong, he's like, "It's the you cancer. know, I, I have brain cancer." <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's it's so it's so true. And like that's it. You and that's it. When we're talking about sometimes, if we're talking about resilience, sometimes it's good to laugh, you know, that revives the spirit. It's restoration for the soul. Mm. And it's like, if you can't laugh sometimes at your own predicament or situation, that can just breathe so much life into your ability to cope as well. So I'm glad he jokes about it. (laughs) Don't, don't, you're not allowed to joke about it. I do not. I do not not joke about that. No. (laughs) Oh my goodness. So what, just in terms of the breast cancer, because I know that a lot of people, you know, deal with that or have friends. I'm an open book. Yeah. Any questions? What, 
uh, I was even reading the type of breast cancer that you had. Maybe if you don't mind sharing that, because I think that's interesting yeah. for people who I knew nothing about all those names and numbers that you were sharing, but I was blown away. I was like, whoa, what is this? And uh, maybe the process that you went through, just so people here sure. and even how you coped with that, you know, was it like, Hey, I got these three tools. I'm good. Like, it's not a problem. Or, you know, is it tough days, up days, you know, yeah. take us through that a little bit. And where, and where are you now? Yes. So, um, I was diagnosed with what's called invasive ductal carcinoma. It's IDC is what they call it. I knew nothing about breast cancer either. So like I said, I started with trying to understand everything I could about breast cancer. So it is the most common form of breast cancer and about 80% of all breast cancers are invasive ductal carcinoma, which just means it has started in the milk ducts of the, of the breast. And so when I said I found out mine was invasive, it just means that it has spread outside the milk ducts or growing through the milk duct wall into the breast tissue outside of the milk ducts. So that's what means it's a spreading type of cancer. Hmm. So there is actually a stage zero on breast cancer, which means it's still contained within that milk duct. And that's called DCIS, which is who knew there was a stage zero on breast cancer. Uh, so... I was diagnosed just before my 36th birthday. As I said, there was no family history. And it took, um, they, I had an MRI about a week after I was diagnosed. And that showed that that likely hadn't spread, which was when I say spread, it didn't look to be a big lump or it didn't look to be in my lymph nodes, which was amazing news. But as anyone who has uh, been diagnosed with breast cancer knows, you don't actually have any form of kind of finality around that until you have your surgery. So that's only an indicator at that point. And the other thing I learned is when women have uh, younger breasts, that's often much harder. We have denser tissue. Uh, it's much harder to tell what's going on in a younger woman's breasts. And uh, I was pretty shocked. So just before I chose to have a bilateral mastectomy and just before my surgery a couple weeks out, my surgeon told me that she thought I had breast cancer in my second breast as well. So I had, that was a massive low point for me to suddenly be like, oh my gosh, if I have breast cancer in my second breast, it's bigger than it's in my first. And now I'm not going to know until I wake up from the surgery. Um, so yeah. But they didn't do a biopsy on your second breast. I was booked for one and I didn't understand what they were looking for. And I was starting to get very, very sick of being pricked and prodded. There was a lot of poking and prodding. I had biopsies on my lymph nodes and things before surgery because I did have one that was slightly inflamed. And I had canceled it, not realizing how concerned they were about my, about my second breast. So that was going to be an MRI-guided biopsy, which is a lot more of a big deal. And they couldn't get me a session back in time uh, to before my surgery. So that was a little bit on me, a little bit on a misunderstanding, but yeah, I was scheduled for biopsy on that one. And so I did, was prepped. Why did you choose for a double mastectomy, double mastectomy? Yeah. So this is a really interesting one because, uh, a lot of it was to do with my age. So when I, as I have now searched the hashtag bilateral mastectomy, uh, you'll see that it's often younger women that are having bilateral mastectomies. My other option was to have what they call a lumpectomy, where they go in and take a huge hunk out of your breast and then to have radiation by having, uh, and then I would have been monitored very closely for the rest of my life uh, with an MRI every year 
and a mammogram every six months as well. So I would have been in the medical system for the rest of my life being monitored very closely because my risk of recurrence was so much higher than the average person's. So as we discussed with doctors, I have many years to live breast cancer free. And uh, I likely have, although I came back negative for 29 genes that are implicated in breast cancer, there's likely a genetic disposition in my tissue that makes me more prone to breast cancer. Uh, So weighing all that up, um, I decided that the best choice for me was uh, a bilateral mastectomy and reconstruction, which I should note has come a long way in a number of years. So uh, I think people used to think like a bilateral mastectomy was was pretty brutal and you had huge scars across your chest and um, they've come a long way. They do what they call now nipple sparing mastectomies. Um, so I have been very lucky with the results of my surgery. Good, good. Don't feel too broken anymore. But because I was uh, stage one, my choice was radiation and then uh, I didn't have to have chemotherapy because it was caught at that stage one and um, it hadn't spread to my lymph nodes. So I am the poster girl for why you should have a uh, mammogram. As soon as you turn 40 women out there, please go and get your mammogram because if you are caught in the early stages of breast cancer, you can avoid so much of the um, of the, the of the treatment and, and the impact it's obviously going to have on your life. Um, yeah. So I, I am counting my lucky stars. It was caught up, caught on that mammogram. Mm. And did your other breast have cancer? No, it didn't. So, um, my surgeon had said that she thought more likely than not that I, that the lump she was looking at was breast cancer, my second breast. And as I said, I, um, I didn't know before I went into surgery. So I was prepped as if I had breast cancer in both breasts and they were set to, uh, I, I had my, uh, I had my surgery at Mayo Clinic cause I live in Minnesota. And so one of the unique things they do is they can immediately test pathology in the surgery. So they were able to immediately test and see that it wasn't breast cancer. So therefore they didn't need to take lymph nodes on my left side, which was amazing. So I woke up knowing that it wasn't breast cancer on that side. Uh, but yeah, she thought it was 60% chance it would be and 40% chance it wasn't. So I was like, hands up in the air. Let's see how we go. So yeah, I didn't know that I wouldn't need chemotherapy until after I came out of that surgery. And that's the case with most women who have breast cancer is that they will not know what their treatment process looks like until after they come out wow. of that surgery. Before we continue our conversation, I want to encourage you to subscribe to the Inspiration Rising podcast on the Apple Podcast or Google Podcast app on your smartphone. This is the absolute best way to listen to each and every episode. Open up the podcast app that came installed on your phone, search for Inspiration Rising, and then click subscribe. And be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform as well. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, all of them with the username of Inspo Rising, I-N-S-P-O-R-I-N-G. We post all kinds of great quotes and behind-the-scenes photos and videos, especially on our Instagram stories. So be sure to follow Inspiration Rising on your favorite social media platform. How much has that experience changed, and maybe it hasn't, you know, your training and coaching on not only resilience, but just life in general? How much has that impacted or or changed the way that you work with others? I think there is a 
a deeper respect for life and the fragility of it. Obviously, I mean, I'm 35 and then I'm suddenly faced with the possibility of my own mortality. Mm-hmm. So, I've always, in terms of my personal coaching, I'm very much about, I take a values-based approach to life. So I, I do deep dives on people's values and, and ask them what matters most to them in life. And I've always been focused on fulfillment in life and how people can live the most fulfilling version of their lives. But it really just brought my work and what I had done into just even greater focus. So like, what do I want? in my life? Am I living aligned with my values? If I don't have 50,000 tomorrows, am I happy now? And, and not in a hedonistic way, but I think I now recognize how much we have to be happy in our journey because the future may not be guaranteed. So if you're constantly chasing goals or postponing your happiness, it's just no way to live. Like you've got to, you've got to live in the joy of today. And so I think that has changed for me. And, uh, but it really has highlighted that the stuff I do in my coaching or was doing beforehand in terms of resilience and, and values-based living and alignment, um, that they work because I've, <laughs> I've had to use it on myself again more recently. And it has helped me come back into personal alignment and into personal focus because I think so often in life, we will be, you know, heading in one direction and then life gets busy, life gets in the way and we kind of get drawn off our own course or our own true north. And that ability to self-reflect and come back into that, what I call sense of personal alignment, living aligned with what matters most to you. Um, breast cancer was an ability for me to, to step back and do that. And I did see that some things I was, I was pulling away from my own true north, so... What did, you, what did you find as you were asking, like, okay, the things that make you happy, the things that provide you with meaning, what did you kind of realign with, do you sense? I think it, it's so interesting because it comes really back full circle with our conversation around resilience, self-care, and well-being. Like, I think we truly do teach what we most need to learn. <laughs> and I've always been uh, drawn to, to stress and well-being, but then I, at the same time, I have often seen, you know, self-care as a luxury in my own life. Like, oh, I don't have time for that. And this helped me realize that, like, if I want to live my best life, if I want to be the best version of me, if I want to be happy, then I can't work myself into the ground. Mm. That I need to balance the sense of restoration alongside my, my, you know, I'm quite a goal-focused person. I'm naturally quite achievement-driven. And so I find that when people have those kind of values of excellence or achievement, that they can often kind of uh, overtake other areas of their life that are vitally important. And so for me, it was about bringing that sense of well-being and self-care much more into intentional focus and investing in that and not viewing it as a luxury. So I I had well-being up on my wall as one of my personal values. But truth be told, I wasn't investing enough in that bucket. I wasn't giving that part of me enough, enough of uh, enough of my time and energy. Mm-hmm. How did you help your kids uh, experience resilience during that last year? You know, my kids are seven and five, so it was very interesting to see how they process uh, everything that I went through. So, um, one thing that was a massive blessing, they were. They were four and six at the time. Pretty young, yeah. 
One thing that was a massive blessing is they don't have the the fear or connotations that go with the word cancer. So they weren't freaked out like other adults were. And, and, you know, adults hear that word cancer and we have years worth of, uh, of, of stories and horror stories and whatever it might be, but all of this sort of idea of what that means and it's scary and my boys didn't have that so we sat them down and we had this conversation about how I had breast cancer and how that was scary to a lot of adults but that at that point it was looking like my diagnosis was going to be either a stage one or a stage two so we felt confident and we didn't talk to them until we did feel confident about this so we didn't tell them immediately but once we felt confident that I was either a stage one or a stage two then we we said, look, I'm going to be okay, and uh, but mum's going to have to have some treatment, and, and that means some surgery. And so we were very clear about the steps with them and what they could expect. And uh, I think that was good. But, you know, it's hard to know what's going on in those little brains. Yeah. And uh, we noticed that even though we kind of communicated that with them, uh, they didn't get it until I came home in bandages and mm. drains and couldn't move and they couldn't mm-hmm. touch me. And that's when it really when we saw the impacts on our kids is when they could see the physical manifestation of, oh, mummy's sick, this is what it looks like. And so until they could kind of see that physical manifestation, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't think is real for them. But my little boy, who's very sensitive, we did notice certain things. Like he was obviously stressed in terms of uh, he started bedwetting more than he had been. And like now, if I go away, they're like, "Where are you going? What are you doing?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is a little bit of that after effect. So it is um, about reassurance with them at this point. But you know, in terms of I was speaking about this, I also do um, I do resilience trainings or a snippet and uh, there's empower leadership academies for girls here in Minnesota. Absolutely amazing. It's a not-for-profit, but I was talking with some of the co-facilitators there about how I think as parents so often now we are trying to just like get rid of any challenge in the way of our children. We're trying to like mow down, as I think Glenn and Doyle Melton said, we're, we're walking, we're not helicopter parents anymore. We're lawnmower parents and we're walking two steps in front of our children and we're mowing down anything that could be a challenge or get in their way. And as a parent, I don't believe that is the way that is going to lead to my children being able to work this stuff out. And, you know, um, would I have wanted my children to have to experience their mother having breast cancer in her 30s? No. Do I think it will make them hardier and more resilient children in the future? Yes. And, you know, it was something that I couldn't mow down for them. Mm -hmm. But I'm very conscious of that with my own children in terms of building resilience. You know, I'm, I'm letting them experience challenge, you know, if... If they are nervous about doing something new, I'm still, I'm not going to stop them from doing it. You know, I'm going to encourage them and I'm going to teach them that they can, that they can rise to the challenge, that they can deal with hard things and be successful. And I think that, yeah, we can over baby our children or coddle them. And I don't think that does build resilience. So yeah, something I'm very conscious with with my, with my children. Kate, you are an inspiration. I love this. Thank you for just sharing part of your story and how, you know, you've been learning firsthand about resilience as you're teaching it. So beautiful. Uh, You know, one playful question, one last question for you. How many times a week do people comment about your accent? Oh my gosh. 
this is this is such a great question. How many so, times a week? If anyone's wondering, I'm from New Zealand. I'm not Australian. <laughs> I cannot get through a drive-through with getting the right order. It's I've lived here for six years and it's still impossible. Honestly, every single day of my life does someone comment on my accent. And I'm not a massively outgoing person. And so I used to get really like, I didn't want to talk. And I didn't even want to ask for anything. Now I'm like, yeah, I'm from New Zealand. And then they'll talk about how beautiful New Zealand is. I'm like, along with Iceland, that's the other country that Americans love. Iceland and New Zealand are very in vogue. And ha, no, yeah, every single. So you're place. nice about it. You're, you smile, you answer, you. I'm very nice about it. I'm very nice about it. But it's, I also do love it when I can order a coffee and they don't say anything. It's really mm. nice. <laughs> Just to be like, oh, I don't stand out for a moment. I'm six foot five. So. You understand. It's not, well, it's not that bad. And, but, and now that I'm older, people don't ask me this question, but when I was probably under 30, people would say, do you play basketball? Oh my gosh. <laughs> All the time. And so I, I just started saying, actually, I'm a professional jockey and just straight faced. And their, like, their mind takes them a minute to go, jockey, wait, is he really a jockey? Wow, what? <laughs> or, or I'll say, actually, I really am passionate about miniature golf. Just straight faced and yeah. But my wife also says that I have the gift of making people feel uncomfortable and that's all part of it. So I often um, I I will sometimes say, you know that calling it because everyone thinks I'm Australian. So I'll say, you know that calling a New Zealander an Australian or asking if they are is like asking a Canadian if they're American and they're like <laughs> Canadians do not want to be mistaken for Americans. <laughs> That is awesome. Well, um, I, I do want to make sure that people uh, get a free resource that you have available. And I've seen it on your website. It's 21 journal prompts for self-discovery. So they can go to your website, thrive.how forward slash free. So it's thrive.how slash free, F-R-E-E. And we'll put that in our show notes and uh, everywhere. And if people want corporate training. I do a lot in the emerging leadership space or high potential space and also the stress, well-being, resilience workshops. And I will travel anywhere in America if you make it worth my while. (laughs) And she also trains on how to develop a New Zealand accent if you need that for your business as well. I do. It's, It's the novelty factor I bring. So you can check out uh, Kate's work, obviously, at thrive.how, and you do one-on-one coaching. So if somebody's wanting coaching on any of these subjects, um, and even if a woman is going through breast cancer, even though you're not a medical doctor, you can help with mindset and you know all of that. That would be great. So, For sure, yeah. I have worked with a couple of clients now who have had breast cancer and, and felt that that sense of understanding, obviously, because I've been through the the same thing that you, there's, there's a lot of things that they don't have to say, which you, that I just understand. But yeah, I also do career coaching and executive coaching. So if you have questions, resilience and burnout, let me know. I'm super thankful for the opportunity to hang out with Kate. And I want you to take advantage of the 21 journal prompts for self-discovery that she's made available at thrive.how forward slash free, F-R-E-E. That's thrive dot how slash free and be sure to check out her podcast called here to thrive it's available where all podcasts can be listened to but especially you might want to check it out on the apple or google podcast apps and 
be sure to share this episode with a friend. If somebody's going through this situation or they just need some extra resilience in their life, they're going through a tough time, this conversation with Kate could be the encouragement that they need. So take a screenshot of this episode on your phone, text it right to them, and tell them to listen to Kate Snowwise on the Inspiration Rising podcast. All right, until next time, have a wonderful week.